It's Monday, April 16th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 157 of the 5049 Podcast. Hey guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation about music, creativity, composition, improvisation, and hanging in there. Today on the show, joining me in that conversation is saxophonist Brigham Kraus. Let's have a listen. This music that you're hearing was recorded in a pedestrian tunnel in Seattle. Big reverb. And you know how I feel about reverb. Today on the show, Brigham Kraus. Before we get into it, uh, I'm going to do exactly what I've been saying I'm going to do, which is remind you that the very first live 5049 podcast taping is happening May 28th at the venue Arate in Brooklyn, New York. We're going to be doing these concerts, these podcast tapings once a month. The first one's happening May 28th. My good friend Toby Driver is going to present some new music. Uh, he's, he's working with the group String Noise for a second set of his ballads. After the concert, Toby and I are going to do a live conversation. All of it will be taped for the podcast. In June, June 18th, it'll be me and Peter Evans and his new ensemble. July, it'll be me and Zena Parkins. And August will be me and Ben Goldberg. These are going to be really good shows. And uh, I'll just let you know. I'm going to keep letting you know about them. You dig? All shows start at 8 o'clock, $20 at the door. Go to 5049records.com for more information on those shows. Today on the show, Brigham Kraus. I'm sure a lot of you are uh, already pretty familiar with Brigham. He's been in New York since the early, mid-90s. He's part of a, a wave of Seattle musicians that uh, sort of descended upon the city around that time. I've talked to a lot of people from, from that wave of Seattle musicians. Chris Speed, Jim Black, Andrew D'Angelo. It was a good crop. New York kind of works like that. There's periods of time where, where, where groups of people come in together. Often, you know, those people will be, you know, from the same city or they'll, you know, finished at the same college at the same time. Usually it's places like Oberlin and, and, and the New England Conservatory and Mills College, um, just for the sake of conversation, you know, the, the, the place where music was really happening at the time that all these guys showed up was at the original Knitting Factory, which uh, was on Houston Street. It was right at the transition period where, where the knit moved from Houston over to Leonard Street, which, you know, was sort of the beginning of the end for that particular um, central venue. Since he got here, Brigham has worked a lot with uh, Steve Bernstein's band, Sex Mob. Sex Mob is one of the bigger bands to emerge uh, and actually break through and find some mainstream success. Um, I love Sex Mob. It's fun music. It's, it's Kenny Wallison, Tony Cher, Steve Bernstein, and, and Brigham playing music that, you know, is, is pleasing for everyone. They play their asses off, and it's fun. 
uh, outside of that, Brigan has done a lot of his own work, uh, a lot of electronic composition, a lot of solo saxophone work more recently, long-standing improvised ensembles. Um, and most recently, and, and we talk about this a bit at the top of the show and then again towards the end of the show, Brigan has uh, immersed himself in the electric guitar. And it's an interesting conversation we have about that. You know, sometimes as a musician, you get stuck in a cycle or a way of playing or, or, or patterns. And as Brigand discovered, a good way to sort of find your way out of it is to pick up a completely foreign instrument and start approaching music there. It, it'll, it'll help you on your whatever your main axe is. Brigand's been in New York for a long time now. He's been a, he's been a big contributor to, to what's been happening here. And if you're not already familiar with him, I recommend that you become so. Go to brigandkraus.com. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of music on the website. You could check out his different projects. He's got a band called H Alpha with Jim Black and Ikoi Mori. He's got a new ensemble called String and Reed Quartet, where you can actually hear him play some guitar. It's Brigand Kraus, Beth Fleener, Wayne Horvitz, and Greg Campbell. A lot of stuff. You could check out all the solo stuff. Go to brigandkraus.com. If you're enjoying this show, Go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. You can throw in a few bucks. You can, you can check it out. And that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Brick and Krause. You've seen this before? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool. It's cool. You want it for guitar or for horn? For guitar. Yeah. But I mean, it's uh, more of as a as a as a um, like a sound for fun than anything else. Yeah, it's like it's one of those pedals that like it's cool. So far, from what I can tell, I just been playing with it. Like it's cool if you're not attached to like a specific result. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> like it's one of those pedals that kind of does its own thing. Right. Yeah. Um, which is great. Especially if you like some indeterminacy in, in your music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just seen like um, um, this guy Dave Harrington use yeah. one, and um, just watched some like video on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, this guy does pedal reviews. It's pretty cool. Oh, wait, which like, guy is it? Is it um, <laughs> the guy in LA? It's like a. I don't know, but they're really nicely produced yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, reviews of pedals, and I get lost in those videos. Yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah. That's anyway. what. Since you've been studying guitar more intensely, have you been absorbed into the world of pedals? I went into the world of pedals as much as I could afford, but I kind of have gone away from them. So I'm, I'm back to just kind of you know, right, just overdrive and some delay because it's like after a point like especially with the super digital pedals yeah like that it's like it just seems like it you just hear the pedals and yeah. it gets to the point where you can tell just by listening like oh that's that pedal oh that's that pedal that person's using you know so it's just kind of like i was kind of more interested in just the just the sound of the yeah it's like it ends up doing the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do which is add some mystery to it instead it like removes the mystery because you're just like oh that's a, it's a line six that's a yeah 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 yeah, I always thought if I play guitar, I would focus more on getting like a really nice, unique amp, mm-hmm. uh, and then worry less about the guitar. Yeah, I kind of yeah, I got the basics, but but then it's like just learning how to play. <laughs> really? <laughs> so you never played guitar as a kid? No, 
No. You started on horn. I started on horn. Yeah. Clarinet. Um, I not really. I I tried. My dad uh, tried to get me to play clarinet like when I was in the third grade, but I was just not. Yeah. Um, mature enough to be able to do it, and then um, have we started it? We're not starting. Yeah, we're going. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on record. Yeah. Um, but I I. I I did. I I quit soon after, and then when I was in junior high school, I just kind of signed up for band class, mm-hmm. and, and they um, said a really uh, cool junior high in Eugene, Oregon, and there was a great band director there, this guy named Rick Wolfgang. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> a lot of people talk about Berkeley High, like uh, like Stephen Bernstein, and like like all this like whole world of people that went through Berkeley High. It was like this amazing program. That was kind of like. Um, Roosevelt Junior High was kind of the, the similar thing, but in for Eugene, Eugene yeah, it was yeah, great, great guy. But anyway, the, I just remember the first day of band class, and they were like passing out like a a sheet, and you just kind of picked what instrument you wanted. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll try the saxophone. And then it was literally it. You hadn't had any forethought about the sax. Yeah, I didn't even think. I'm not even sure why I signed up for band class. I don't even know what I was thinking. Yeah, but it was like you. It was this junior high where you you signed up for classes. So I was like, oh, okay, I got the. Then you're supposed to pick you know, electives or something. And this was a public school or a private school? Public Public school. Yeah. 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 And this guy was, he knew how to, uh, what was his name again? Rick Wolfgang. Rick Wolfgang. Um, I think he, um, I think he had like a PhD in music, but he, he had, um, a really great, uh, gift for teaching and love for it. Mm -hmm. And like even in junior high, this like, like, um, junior high school, that had like the regular kind of like school band thing, but there was also orchestra. So there was like full on orchestra. Um, and like the orchestra would go like compete in high school competitions and do really well. Like, um, people were into it. There was also a jazz band. Um, and what he would do is I, I just remember I, I loved it so much because he would just at the beginning of class we just had some some simple like heads like blues things or something mm-hmm. and there's a rhythm section it was kind of like a small big band and he would just write on the board like the blues scale you know like okay the trumpets and and tenors you read this one and the altos you read this one and we just go around like just taking choruses and choruses on the blues, mm. just playing the blues scale. And it was so much fun. It just yeah. made it really fun. And he, he, um, I remember him really fondly for just really just, there was something about him that just, you know, really brought out the, the, the love of it, you know? Yeah. That's ultimately, I think, uh, like my, my sister-in-law wants to get, uh, music lessons for her kids. They're like, they're young, you know, five, six years old. She was like, do you think they should get Suzuki method or whatever? And I didn't have much lessons growing up. What I told her was, I think you should just find someone who gets them excited about engaging with music. Mm-hmm. That kind of seems like the most crucial first step. Yeah. Yeah. I can uh, think of so many things that um, I was interested in as a kid, but then when the subject would come up in school, like, you know, topics in science, like, you know, there was just like, just had the joy you know taken out of it, it was yeah like, you know um so it's a pretty rare thing when somebody knows that they have a gift for teaching and they're and they this guy could i probably could have taught anywhere but he was like i want to teach in this was he a player too <clears throat> i that was so long ago i don't really i think he played french horn uh-huh. i'm not 100 percent sure <laughs> right but he's just a um 
he just said this wonderful thing. And um, it happened to be in a school where they, you know, being in band was cool in Roosevelt Junior High School. Although I was far from being a cool kid. But, yeah. but you know, it was like... But Eugene, you know, I feel like... I know a couple people have gone through Eugene. Is that, so that's where you grew up, is Eugene? No, I went to... I, I was a kid in Minnesota. Okay. Um, Twin Cities. And then um, my family moved to Eugene. I went to junior high school in Eugene. And then um, went to high school in uh, near Portland, Oregon, in Lake Oswego. Okay. And then um, when I finally decided to go to college, I wound up in Seattle at Cornish College okay. of the Arts. So I, I knew there was a Seattle connection somewhere. Yeah. I just like you, you look at your discography real quick and it's like, there's a lot of Seattle dudes on here. <laughs> So there's a lot of Seattle. I was really lucky. I met uh, there were a yeah. lot of people from Seattle, kind of around my generation, that moved to New York. That um, um, mean like Chris, and Jim, and Chris, Jim, Andrew D'Angelo, Mike Serene, Aaron Alexander, yeah, Hammerschlag, um, um, just a whole whole bunch of people. Uh, Kung Vu, um, yeah. There was a whole bunch of people from Seattle that kind of gradually made it to New York. So there was like a built-in community of Seattleites in yeah. New York. Yeah, yeah. Most like the the early on the the Aaron Alexander and Brad Shepik were. Well, we went to we were at Cornish at the same time. Um, the other guys, um, and Arnold Hammerschlag is a great trumpet player. Um, the other guys went to East Coast schools like like uh, in Boston. Uh-huh. Um, but I kind of got to meet them gradually, um, and then. Uh, um, yeah, we wound up in New York. One time we were at the at the old knitting factory on Houston, mm-hmm. and they had a, a bar in the upstairs performance space. I ate dinner there and two nights ago. At the... Uh, at Estella. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, but we were hanging at the bar like after a gig or something, and somebody said, wait a minute, everybody at this bar is from Seattle. And I was like, oh, wow. Huh. <laughs> it's like, kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed, you know? you know, you notice that like, you know, once you get to New York, or once I got to New York, I was like, oh, there's all these different like group, you know, there's like the NEC people who, you know, know each other there, and there's the, you know, the Oberlin people and the Mills and that, that, that. Right. And it must have felt great to have like, you know, a crew to sort of... I was very, very lucky. I yeah. was very lucky. I got, um... Um, a lot of those guys were already here when I moved here. Uh-huh. Um, so I kind of had a, and I played here a few times with Wayne Horvitz. So I, I kind of knew some people gradually, but when I moved here, I kind of moved into a kind of like small community of, of musicians. So I, yeah. I, um, I was really, really lucky. So you'd already been playing with Wayne in Seattle, yeah. like fresh out of college or during college? Um, kind of during college when I started. How'd you encounter Wayne? Um, Frizzell and Wayne moved to Seattle around the same time. And Bill did a, uh, like a workshop or masterclass kind of thing at Cornish where I was a student. And, um, and I, if I have the story straight, that's right. I think that maybe Bill told Wayne about me or something, but, but then, um, the first time I met Wayne was doing a a, a a reading session for a record that he was producing with uh, Jerry Grinelli. Oh, wow. so it was just that it was like um, um, just kind of like they were 
Jerry was going to do this record. I think it was Kenny Garrett was on the record, that, but they wanted to just make sure the the charts and everything were, were okay. good before the session. So um, that's the first time I met Wayne was just to go over to his house and look at the charts that they were going to use. Um, yeah, and then um, Wayne started this band called Pigpen, uh-huh. and um, that's when I started working with Wayne. Yeah, I mean, this was this would have been like right after Wayne and Bill had left Naked City and moved out west. Um. I'm not sure exactly when they yeah. went there, but this would have been 1990 or 91, yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Were you already familiar and and enthused by their music? Oh, certainly, yeah. certainly, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it was actually it was uh, Avon Kang that 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 um, um, pl- uh, played me uh, that Naked City record with the first uh, one, yeah, Nonsuch. That, yeah. Um, um that really just that that i think i remember i think i remember when i first heard that i was just kind of wow this it really it it um it really changed my life was it that all of these different musics were like smashed up against each other was it the what 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 grabbed you exactly um it was just the um i kind of let a um like a dual personality kind of life where um, my father was a, a musician and he was um, still um, still is a tremendous uh-huh. uh, music fan and I grew up just he listened to jazz records constantly it was just in the house like jazz records all, like, all, all eras or um, pretty much from from bebop on um, so he listened to weird shit too oh yeah okay. oh, yeah 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 you know, definitely um, but through friends and just growing up in America, I was also exposed to all these other musics that I mm-hmm. loved, like punk rock and, you know, of course, you know, all kinds of other stuff. But I always kind of felt like, okay, there's jazz music, you know, and that's the music I was studying. Mm-hmm. Um, the first couple of years I was in at, in college, I was just really just, and I was studying with Hadley Callum and was... Um, you were, session. like, learning how to, you know, improvise over changes. And- Charlie Parker. Yeah. Um, Sonny Stitt. Like, it was like... That was what. Did you enjoy you know. that stuff? Like, oh, absolutely! I love yeah. that music so dearly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but then, um, when I heard that Naked City record, I was like, suddenly it was like, it's okay to mm-hmm. like to really like just like you said, just kind of like bring all these things together. And it was like, um, it was really, it was really something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also Zorn's playing too. Like, uh, yeah, the, I, was about the, to say, I don't think John would appreciate this statement but like to hear someone who can really play the sax and play the shit out of the sax over this like this thing where all these different things are happening at once is really exciting absolutely absolutely yeah yeah so you first met those guys pretty early on at uh, at their west coast arrival i don't i don't know how long they'd been there before i met them but i think i met them like right around almost my last year at cornish Mm -hmm. so did you, you 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 knew that you wouldn't be sticking around the pacific northwest I kind of always thought that I would want go to New York. Yeah, be- because of jazz music. Because of jazz music. Because yeah. of the history of jazz, or you, did you have an awareness of what was going on at places like the Naden Factory? And um, I gradually came to know what the so-called downtown scene is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just before that, I just always thought like, well, you know, if you want to play jazz, you have to move to New York. Yeah, I don't know if that's really true anymore, but. Um, 
but I think it is in a way. In, 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 in at the very least, and they're doing a pretty good job of, of taking this from us, but in the very least, that I can look out the window right now and see the Williamsburg Bridge. Like that, that it's like having like a starter for like a sourdough bread. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> or like the other day, I was walking around these village and, you know, it's like, oh, Charlie Parker lived in that building on uh-huh. Avenue B. It's like, uh-huh. even though you could, that's, you know, you can learn to be an amazing musician anywhere in the world on any instrument. It's pretty cool to, you know, be able to smell it and touch it like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's no longer the, <clears throat> like the sole source. That's I mean, right. I just, I, I, I learn more and more about all kinds of like interesting people that live all over the place. These yeah. little worlds that are like, you know, it's amazing sounds. So just, and I guess maybe that's one of the double-edged sword of the internet is that um people can somehow still be heard you know anywhere yeah um i mean i i I, you know i I complain just as much as as everyone else about various aspects of of cyber life but when i think about my experience in junior high and high school would have been cool to have had a high-speed internet connection you know (laughs) (laughs) all i was trying to do was transcend the world around me and escape it Uh it would have been really cool to be able to hear everything and that's true. I mean, were you like when you were growing up? Like, I, 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 I'm realizing that there's a lot of different people. Or for people, there's a lot of different. Like, what instrument did your dad play? Saxophone. Sax. Yeah, and did was so you you playing sax and playing sax was that like a thing that you guys shared as a father and son? Um, I think so, but he had um he had stopped playing. When I was a real, real little kid, I think my my earliest childhood memory is of him walking around the apartment um, playing saxophone. Alto, but, alto, yeah. yeah. The, the horn I play now was his. What is it? It's a. It's a. It's a Model Twenty Two. Okay. It's a Selmer. Okay. Uh, model Twenty Two. Um, I had a Con student model horn in in junior high school, but um, when I started high school, I, I just started playing that horn. Yeah. Um, that's the only one. I've but he and he stopped. He stopped. Why? Yeah. Um, I think it was, um, um, maybe having a family, um, maybe, um, you just didn't feel like continuing to do it. Um, I really don't know exactly. Yeah. Was it something that, uh, even though he had stopped playing, was it something that you guys talked about? Like, like, oh, this, you know, this is what birds are doing on this solo, or it's funny. Um, certainly, um, we, we do now. But when I was a kid, um, I kind of hated listening to music. Um, All music. Well, in the sense that, um, um, like, sitting down and listening to a record was really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I really was much more interested in in um, and going outside and, and, and running around. Um, but I, I, I still feel like it was a, a tremendous benefit just to have it just in the air. You yeah. Know, just kind of, um, you know. It colors things. Yeah, and um, kind of baked in from early some somehow. Yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. Definitely, definitely. But, um, but yeah. So so you knew that after Cornish, and how, how quickly after Cornish did you come east? Um, within a year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, what was it? Um, 
two year and a half or so. I moved here in ninety four. Mm-hmm. I finished Cornish in ninety two. Ninety four. Yeah. So I'm trying to invite like from what I know of of I mean the knitting factory was probably still on Houston Street at that. It time. was for the for one year. The first year I was in New York, it was still on Houston Street. Yeah. And then it moved to Leonard. Yeah. Um, it's actually funny. I I I, I had a realization the other the other day this like i moved here 24 years ago and i'm 48 so i've lived in new york city like i've crossed the like more than half of my life so you're you're a new yorker (laughs) (laughs) some people might not yet think so Uh um i i think so it's just kind of like wow it's where it'll go but um yeah i was on houston for a year and then um yeah and what did you go to brooklyn or where'd you go Brooklyn, yeah. I live um when I first moved here I lived with um Brad Shapik and Mike Serene in a place on St. Mark's Avenue in, in Park Slope, uh-huh. like right on Fifth Street. Um Kurt Rosenwinkel and Ben Street lived in the apartment upstairs. Um and I I kinda stayed on those guys' couch for a really long time till yeah. I till I've uh, found a place. But um yeah, that was a that was a great time. Yeah. I yeah. mean, did you did you like have to do like find a job immediately and all that stuff? Yeah, I worked in a record store in in Brooklyn Heights that, of, of course, is no longer no longer there. <laughs> right. um, I've done all kinds of kinds of weird weird little jobs, but um, yeah, that that place was uh, was um, kind of amazing. It was the <clears throat> you know, I, <clears throat> pardon me. I, I I often play with a, a mute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a towel. A towel. Yeah, um, and that was that all started in that apartment mm-hmm. because you know so many musicians around everywhere um, that Mike had the landlady let him make a little drum booth in the basement out of like this little kind of closet kind of space, just enough room for a drum set in there and like walls, you know, just you. Could, Right there, just mm-hmm. this tiny little room, and I would go down there to practice if I couldn't uh, practice in the living room, or whatever. Um, but the thing is, is, like the room was so small that it was it was really loud to right. it was like um, to play in there. And um, you know, but I just kind of put up with it. But then one day I was like, I comes out trying to wear headphones that doesn't work so well, and earplugs that's even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so then out of frustration, I reached down and I grabbed this towel I had in my case and I jammed it in the belt and problem solved. <laughs> Problem, problem solved, but also in in a really fascinating way because all of a sudden it was like this whole completely different instrument. I mean, certainly just from the the the, the point of view of sound production, it's a completely different thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, were you were or you know did you feel at all like well, uh, I mean, you can practice your 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 embouchure, you can practice your fingerings, you can practice your breath control, but as far as shaping the sound and how you project with it, it, it sort of limits things. Um. I mean the the towel. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I I think of it as a completely different instrument. Yeah. I mean, I remember the minute I did it, I, I just immediately I was. It just opened this whole other, um, this whole other sonic thing that's sounds from the saxophone that were just I completely new. To me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and also just opening up um, other kinds of ways of playing because the way I have the, the towel in there is it's like that. When you close all the keys, mm-hmm. no air comes out. It's right. very tight in there. So then, you know, that you open different keys, and that's a completely different 
an instrument. Like yeah, the sound yeah, yeah. Out. It, and so, yeah, I mean, and the back pressure's different. Uh, everything's different. Yeah, and immediately you said, oh, I can do something with this. I've not sure if I thought that exactly, yeah. but I just thought, like, this is really cool. This is, wow, what's this? Yeah. And so I, I just kind of started and did, And how out. quickly did you work that into, pardon the expression, your repertoire? Right away. Yeah, right away. Like on Absolutely. sessions, you would start doing that, and sure, yeah, sure, yeah. I mean, that's um, yeah. When you find something interesting, you got to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Were you doing, or did you feel the need to to do like jazz sessions, like getting together with people and just playing standards? And you know, it's funny. I I I um I studied that music. Um, so much when I was in college, and I, I love it, and to this day I, I love playing it. And it's, but it's only recently that I've kind of um, started kind of playing jazz music again. Really? Um, yeah, I, I, when I got to got to New York, it was mostly um, you know playing people's original tunes and mm-hmm. play and and. Um, playing a lot of improvised music um so that was kind of what the world i entered when i got to new york i never really did the yeah the, the jazz session kind of thing yeah um so but not for lack of love of that music it was sure. just kind of i was yeah you know, just, you know. i mean there's so many worlds you can kind of slip into here mm-hmm. and it's also one of those things i found that before you know it you're like whoa where did the last 10 years go like i've been really focusing on this like one or two things for the last right. 10 years and, you know which is not good or bad it's just something that i think happens yeah you know yeah so and so you immediately did you guys start playing gigs like i assume well let me step back sorry who were the people that you first started playing with the seattle folks when I got to New York, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the first thing was um, a trio called Babkiss, which is was with uh, Brad Shepik and Aaron Alexander. Um, we did some records on Songlines okay. uh, label, yeah. Um, and um, so that was all original music. Um, um, so that was kind of the, the first band I was in in New York, um, and then just. You know, as it happens, you know, just kind of different things. Sure. Happening. But that was the first one. Do you remember some yeah. of the places that you were playing at first? Oh, uh, sure. We played at Knitting Factory a, uh-huh. a lot. And um, um, that seemed to be the the main place in New York, I think. I don't really remember other venues so much. I really want to, like, time. I mean, I don't personally want to embark on this endeavor, but... I would love to see a, like a comprehensive list of all the venues of the last, say, thirty-five years where improvised music was presented on a regular basis. All the ones that have come and gone, and with some sort of like antidotal component to it. If people, you know, it's like how many places, you know, it's it's got to be hundreds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that'd be interesting. If you had a little slider on it, you could just the 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 you have map of the city, and then you just have the slider that's like you can just go through the decades and watch all these dots just kind of yeah yeah yeah. I mean, I do it like in my own like you know when I'm walking around, you know, like uh, a month or two ago, I was in the Upper West Side and I walked past this youth hostel and I was like, hey, I remember playing 
like a really terrible gig at that place, you know, in like 2002 or something like uh-huh. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, that would be cool. Just like a lot of these places. I played a place the other night that, you know, just started doing music and the 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 sort of like jaded New Yorker in me was like, I wonder how long this place will be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. But you were able to hit the ground running and, and get involved with people that were doing original music. And that was yeah. the goal, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, basically. The first thing I heard you play on was um, the Sex Mob record. Um, i trying to think of the name of it. It, it was the one where you guys uh, do the Rolling Stones, Goodbye Ruby Tuesday. Um, um, was it Den of Iniquity? Was it the first one? I think it was the second one. Uh, oh, shit. <laughs> um, this one right here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, solid, solid sender. Yeah. yeah, it was. I mean, I got it at Tower Records. Um, I think I honestly I bought it because I saw that it was on Knitting Factory. I didn't. I think I might have knew Kenny Wallison from something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But honestly, this was like one of the first records I ever heard from like the downtown scene that was fun, mm-hmm. and that yeah. had a big impact on me. Oh wow, that's cool. That's great. You got it at Tower on um, was on. Tower in Lafayette? Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, in Nashville. Yeah, like really far oh, away wow. from the scene. Oh, man. Yeah. I remember that, that tower that was on the place was magic. Broadway. Yeah. Remember, I, I, I went in there and I had a card. Like and a I, discount card? or like No, a- like a card in the racks, like in the jazz section. Are you there serious? Was, there was like a Brick and Crown's card. You're like, I, I made like, it. Uh, wow. I've arrived. <laughs> I, I had that same experience when I saw my name at um, at uh, Amoeba Records in Hollywood. I was oh, like, yeah, oh, yeah. That's it. I guess I can call it a day. Yep. There you go. There you go. Well. When did you yeah. first start playing with, with Steve? Um, I met Steven in, in Seattle, actually, when he was doing a – he was in town doing a, um, a – like a theater run with the Flying Karamazov oh, brothers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Aaron Alexander was subbing for the drummer in, um, I guess that was the Kamikaze Ground Crew, I think. And so, and then Aaron was, I lived with Aaron back then. We both lived in Seattle. And um, he was like, I'm going to go do this this session at this place. I can't remember what it was, like this club in Seattle. And, and um, do you want to come along? It's like this guy, Steven's going to be there. And, and uh, this other guy named Artis and you know some be some people playing i was like okay great so i went and i met steven and this guy artist the spoon man who was like kind of this um legendary figure in the northwest who was like a performance artist but also just amazing musician with all kinds of like spoons you know mm-hmm. um you know that sound garden song spoon man yeah it's about artists oh really he he has that there's like a breakdown section in the middle of it he's playing if you listen carefully you can hear him really he's playing this solo it's like this kind of percussion like like crazy thing. i hope it's they like, took care of him for that i hope they did too yeah, yeah, yeah. um but um but anyway, that's when I met Steven, and, and he liked my shoes. I had these uh, Doc Martens that, uh, that I, 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 kept really, I kept really polished, uh-huh. even though they were really old and broken in, but I kept them really polished. Yeah, yeah. He was just like, I like those shoes, man. It's like, when you come to New York, you call me up. Because I had nice shoes. I, that's how I met Steven. Sometimes that's all so, it yeah. takes. You know, well, no, never mind. <laughs> but yeah, uh, nice shoes are important. I, I take my boots very seriously. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's how you met Stephen. 
And yeah, at that session, yeah. yeah did did you call him pretty quickly upon arrival? Um, I I don't remember. I I, yeah. I really don't remember how we first started playing. Um, but um, Sex Mob started in the tap bar on Leonard yeah. Street when they had um, you know regular gigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that I, band has always sounded to me like a band that has done regular gigs. Well, that, I would love to do that again sometime. But it was like it was. I think we played we played once a week for like a year and a half or so. Really, and um, there was a, there was a, a time at the the tap bar when I played in like three bands a week for like about a year and a half. So there was like this three year period where it's just like I just played in the tap bar like constantly. It was great. Yeah, um, but Sex Mob was was started there, and um, and that was sort of the intention to let's start a band that builds a sound over time working regularly i don't know uh, um i think that steven didn't didn't imagine that it would last as long as it did mm -hmm. um but um yeah it was just like let's let's have a band and what was he going to call it um he didn't want to call it the steven bernstein quartet and he was kind of he was joking with um with michael dorf about calling it sex mob and, and michael's like oh, okay Steven's like, well, you print that in the paper? He's like, yeah, sure. It's like, okay, let's keep <laughs> so that's, As far as I understand correctly what happened. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that's how that band started. Yeah. Which is a great way to start a band, just like play every week for a year. And um, Yeah. yeah. I'm super envious of people. I, when I say I'm envious of people that do that, I'm, I'm not even talking about the opportunity as much as I am like the commitment. You know? Mm -hmm. Like I envy that level of commitment and and patience because i think it takes a lot of patience and and willingness for to just be okay with things not working sometimes absolutely i mean that's been um <clears throat> kind of the spirit of 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 sex mob the whole time like often when we do a record we're doing all new music and steven just brings in sketches or charts like to the recording session mm -hmm. we just kind of work it out there and record it <laughs> and yeah the, like um you know he's very open to um to Un, unexpected things happening i think because he he trusts the people that he asked him to yeah. play um but um yeah i was i always admired that and just uh, this the 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 spirit of fun mm -hmm. you know, it was really it was a wonderful thing too i i mean it was it was huge for me to to experience it that way to like you know cuz my friends i was hanging around with at the time you know i was maybe like 20 or something you know I was like, let me put this on. They're like, oh god, not more like like weird <laughs> shit. And I was like, no, you're gonna like this one. It's cool, you know. <laughs> and it's like you sometimes. I for me personally, being like pretty deeply involved with you know abstract music that may perhaps require a lot of contextualizing before you sit down with it. It's nice to be able to enjoy music with people and not have to be like, well, you know, this guy's doing this thing that you know originally started mm -hmm. with, you know, mm -hmm. and just really enjoy it. Um, and also you can take it apart for like great playing and mm -hmm. cool compositions and the records sound good. It's like a really beautiful nugget of, of New York music. Yeah. Yeah. But that's interesting. That's interesting though. I've, I've kind of always wondered like why, um, why is some music thought of as more difficult to listen to than, than other music? Mm -hmm. And, and, um, because to me, it, it, I don't know. I, I just, unless the sound is like physically uncomfortable, mm -hmm. it's just sound. 
Um, I really don't get like why a lot of people are here's something that right away doesn't fit kind of a pretty narrow mm-hmm. um, spectrum of what they'd expect from music and just immediately just put their hands up and just go, hey, I don't like that. It's funny. It's funny because I now find myself at the other end of it. Like I've, you know, I've sound has always been the something that is a, since a small child, you know, I, I would imitate bird sounds. Mm-hmm. I would learn to make sounds, you know, with, with things around me, with my mouth. So I've always responded to, to sound that, you know, had this tactile quality to it. I'm at a point now where I hear things in music, you know, like signifiers that I immediately say, turn that shit off. And generally those things are going to be like the stuff that I hear if I'm in the back of an Uber, you know, something coming out of like hot 97 or, right. you know, and, and honestly, I feel like, I'm like, God, I'm saying this. I, I sound like an old guy, but like, <laughs> but it's like, this isn't music. Like yeah. mu- music is people engaging in something communally uh, with, with some sense of, we're going to push ourselves and, and make something happen. Like, I hear this shit that's just like, it's, I don't hear. Recorded music to me has always been, sorry if I'm going on a rant. No, um, no, rant or what? It's been really? like, it's been the souvenir of a person or a group of people's inward journey. And it's what they come out with to say, hey, this is what we found. Mm-hmm. You know? And when I hear a lot of this shit, I, I don't hear that inward journey and I don't hear the struggle. I just hear something that. I find utterly wretched and repulsive. I, I couldn't. I, I absolutely agree. Um, I know exactly what you're saying. I think what I'm, I'm what I'm talking about is like more like, um, um, why do people have a hard time listening to Albert Eiler or Eric, Derek Bailey or like just like kind of like what you what a lot of people call like weird music? Like it, sh- it shouldn't. I, I just don't get it. I was I, listening yeah. to Live in Greenwich Village the other day, which is on the, the, the spectrum of recorded Eiler music. You know, there's some some of the more abrasive stuff. But, like, it's not... It, I, I'm with you because so much of that music specifically, I mean, it's music that deals pretty pretty closely with joy, with, uh, with shared language, mm-hmm. and sadness, mm-hmm. you know, and blues. Like, it's not even, it's not even hidden behind any, like, abstract... You know, um, uh, uh, you know, gestures like it's straight up. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sounds like a church group. Yeah, an incredible technique. Like Albert Eiler's such a good saxophone player. Yeah, one. I mean, just like, um, just to be able to play so vocally and just it it requires it's easy to not notice it because it's so beautiful and, and full of energy and mm-hmm. spirit and, and, but just looking at just, just listening to play the saxophone is just amazing. Yeah. My God. Something really I've always amazing. gotten out of Eiler's playing and you hear it a lot when he's soloing is you can hear an idea and I can, I can hear that physically like the idea was cut short or like he, you know, he lost his breath or you can hear it, but he just keeps going and keeps going in a way that it's like, Oh, clearly what's more important here is not like harping over, you know, an idea that didn't, you know, he just keeps going and keeps going. And it's like, you just get like wrapped up in this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, were you, I mean, I'm with you on this thing. I, 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 I do, do you feel like people, who don't live in the world of 
instrumental music and and improvised music do do you think that the tolerance for <laughs> this music has become lower um Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I have I have no idea. Yeah. I guess what maybe what made me think about it is is when you said that um, you mentioned contextualizing, and I kind of always have this thing where like if you. If I go to a museum and I see, you know, some paintings mm. or whatever, like how much, how much do I want to read the card that's next to it? Like, like how much do I want to know about what I'm supposed to know about it before I experience it? Or can I just experience it empirically and just, is that enough? Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of tend towards more towards the empirical like mm -hmm. value of it. Um, contextualization is important, um, but um, I guess so the thing is like if people seem to have an idea about what abstract art is, mm -hmm. is but what's abstract music? Like what's if you're if you're if you're from another planet, you come here and it's like, would you hear a difference between, um, um, you know, Johnny Cash and 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 Gamelon music? I mean, mm -hmm. would it would it really would it click the same way? Um, like, what is abstract music? It's just mm -hmm. it's all just this kind of like, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, I've been sort of, and I, I'm I've been revisiting the Jacques Attali book Noise. Oh, sure. Lately, mm -hmm. <laughs> helping me to sort of uh, make sense of of a lot of w what's around me. I've been feeling, I think, like a lot of us have, you know, kind of disenchanted with uh, with things on a pretty broad scope. You know, the the uh, you know, political climate, obviously, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but also just the you know, and 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 I really am trying to answer for myself how much of what I'm experiencing, the feelings I'm having, is oh, this is just what happens when you get older. You feel like all the magic is behind you, but then I also feel like no, quite objectively, you know, things did used to be more colorful. People, there was more of of a you know, in this city that we live specifically, mm -hmm. uh, more of a buzz around things, and people, you know, there was more general interaction uh you know and and I, I don't you know necessarily want to talk about you know what iphones have done and 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 you know how we're sort of fusing with with technology in a way that you know at this point it is what it is you know um and you kind of have to define for yourself how much you're gonna you know engage with it but what's what has been particularly hurtful to me is i've always felt like a responsibility for the same reason I don't get rid of any of these books and CDs and shit. I feel a responsibility to have like a 
pretty comprehensive understanding, knowledge, and and of of things that have come before me. Um, that it like it's not okay to just play the clarinet. It's not okay to to just you know record conversations with other people. I, I kind of need to see know how it all fits together, mm. and I see less and less of that because everything. I, I I think it's because everything is so immediate that you don't really need to know what didn't happen ten minutes ago, because you know, and I I don't want to. You know, it's like my grandfather's favorite music growing up was Nat King Cole. Mm. I don't give a fuck about that music at all. But I could tell you quite a lot about it just because you retain things along the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. That, that's, a, that's a great book. Um, Noise. Yeah. Yeah. It was written in the 70s and, and it talks a lot about kind of like, it leads up to the, the like what the music industry was then like the whole mm-hmm. idea of of uh of stockpiling noise mm-hmm. like of when recorded music was all of a sudden something that could be commodified um and i would i would love to uh see a, an updated version of it yeah you know um i haven't re- it's been a long time since i've read it um but um Yeah. Well, here's what I'm struggling with, and maybe you can help me, okay. or maybe we'll explore this together. <laughs> Let's do. Uh, I had this ex- this this like flash the other day that like really has you know kind of got me scratching my head, which is realizing that now that most people don't have CD players or CD drives, mm-hmm. if I want to give one of my CDs to a friend, uh-huh. literally the thing that's preventing them from experiencing it is the object itself. Yeah, yeah. You know that's that's fucked up, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you know, if you go back to Atali and you go back to Adorno, these are the guys that'll tell you, oh, music, like, with every advancement in technology, whether it's printing scores to the phonograph, every major technological advance, as it becomes a commodified object, it it lessens the quality and the impact of the music. So now I'm like, well, if music isn't dependent on physical objects, like, at all anymore, like, shouldn't I be in a really good place? Well, um, that's an interesting question, especially since you still have to make CDs, it seems. Like, it's, nobody's buying them, but you need, you still need to make them for getting gigs or, like, getting reviews or stuff. I don't know. I, um, I, I don't, I mean... Here's the thing, like, nobody knows what the so-called music industry is anymore, right? There's there's no there there anymore. And to trying to figure out how to how to game it, how to work it, like how to succeed in it, it's just like something that I've never even been remotely interested in trying to figure out because it's just like that would take all of all of my time. Yeah. Like to try to figure out what to do with this you know trying to sell music or try to you know i just i i just want to practice (laughs) but yeah yeah. what do you think i mean i'm trying to figure it out it's like the the simple response is honestly you know i my favorite aspect of making music has always been making records always Mm -hmm. 
being in the more studio. than performing. Definitely, really love performing. But what I really love doing is sculpting sound, and and you know until I get it to a point where I'm like I don't even know what this is anymore. Oh, <laughs> you know that that yeah. aspect of me. So huh. to me, making a record and finishing it with a physical document, like I it, I feel heartbroken at the thought of having to you know maybe like not do that or not be able to do it as much. Right. Or um. As far as what you you know like. Now more than ever, it, it's it's become clear to me. All I want to do, as, as you just said, is like make music. Like I can't, the people, the music business, or the like rotting corpse that is being held up, you know, pretending that it's like a thriving business. Like <laughs> it, 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 it's all. From what I can tell, it's like this. It's it's this like very empty economy that's pretending to be alive, and they are, you know, what's valuable now are like really ephemeral things like likes and clicks and and plays on youtube and shit sure and it's like so you know i, I i've i've read articles people talk about oh how do you you know uh interact with your audience in that way and do all this shit and it's like like you said i mean you, you could spend the entire day figuring out these like these current um approaches to you know building an audience it's got nothing to do with actually engaging with them or making you know a piece of art that's meaningful, right? No, absolutely. So I, I I'm I want to play. <laughs> I want to play. You mm. know, I I kind of feel like uh, it's become pretty tough. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, recording now is is is. Um, I wish I could do more of it. I have um, a few projects that I just wish would have been documented, but they just never were because I just lack of resources. Sure. And um, I was super lucky to catch maybe just the tail end of a recording business when I I had uh, records on Knitting Factory. Mm -hmm. They actually gave me budgets. Right. I mean, that was unbelievable. That was so amazing. Mm -hmm. It was great. Um, that allowed it to happen. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it's like you. I don't even know if you can. I mean, does there's no budgets. There's no budgets. I mean, so like, um, yeah. I wish I could. I, I wish I could do more recording. I really admire like, um, like Zorn. Like, I don't. I don't think he cares about selling records, but he cares about documenting everything. It's yeah. just like even just like, um. You know, just documenting your work. Mm -hmm. That's super important. But, you know, that's, <laughs> it's a, I think, it's I sound. mean, you know, self-releasing is definitely just what's up now for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I've done a few things on, you know, Bandcamp. You know, yeah. That are like, you know, solo records. Like that yeah, I, yeah, I, I just, didn't really have to play, you know, I didn't have to pay anything really. But, you know, if I had to, and I, I just put them on there and I, you know, pay what you want. You yeah, know, or, yeah, just, yeah. or don't pay anything. I don't care. But um, the um, yeah. But if I have to hire a studio and musicians and stuff, then it's just like, oh man. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but so let's talk about that stuff for a second. So I listened today to the record. Um, I listened to a little bit of the studio one. I listened to most of the one that was recorded in the pedestrian tunnel in in Washington. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What 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 has been the experience? So you've made like three solo records now. Yeah. And what's the experience been like? The f the first two were kind of done on the same day. Um, the in Seattle, um, do you know who Skerek is? Yeah, of course. So Skerek, um, 
I've known Skerek since I lived in Seattle. He's a friend. And we did a gig together um, Was a with Wayne Horvitz, actually. It was a Zony Mash plus horns. Oh, yeah. And afterwards, he was like, he said he wanted he wanted to produce a studio a solo record for me kind of like of you know he said of like of what you do i want to make a record i was like okay um you know i'd never really i'd tried playing solo a couple times in yeah. in you know in years past and i kind of never really liked it that much but i was like okay i'll 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 do it you know so eventually next year whenever i i went back to seattle again um he and randall dunn um, we drove to that p- tunnel uh-huh. and and I played there for like 20 minutes then we went to his house and played in his studio for like 20 minutes and then it was like okay that's those are solo records um, it was a, a a really cool experience I like the tunnel more than the studio of course um, yeah but then um, the, the third one was when um, last summer when I played a solo set at, at the Saul Felden Festival. And that was that was really something else for me. Because I, I... Five years ago, I started playing guitar. Mm-hmm. And I'd owned a guitar for, you know, years and, you know, would monkey around on it every now and then. But then one day I had this thought of, like, well, what would happen if I actually tried to learn how to play this thing and then it just it took over i got obsessed with it and then so i stopped playing practicing saxophone pretty much um thinking that the guitar would kind of you know my saxophone playing would suffer but actually uh-huh. my saxophone playing changed i mean we could we could talk for like i could talk for like two hours just uh-huh. about that um but anyway but i i hadn't really pra- practiced saxophone for years but then I got offered the the solo gig, and I was like, "Well, I better, I better practice." It was this. their idea to do it was the their solo. idea, yeah. yeah. And um, um, so I had the summer to just kind of like, I just really went back into it again. And um, like, I, I would, I never did this, but I, I would record myself practicing and listen back, and like, really, just it was a whole other kind of like going back into the saxophone after kind of taking this funny detour through the guitar and and um sounds really healthy <laughs> it, it yeah it was it was great and then playing that concert was really um was really um that was a great experience for me and um <laughs> um that was I think we've shared we share a thing about sound, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's why I've always loved just sound, and so like playing solo saxophone is is like not really about playing saxophone; it's about making sound, mm-hmm. and it's about creating a piece with just the sounds you can make with that. Yeah, so it's a great it, instrument for it too. It is, um, and um, so it was. Yeah, it was really, it was really, um, it was really. Um, um, Really amazing. Did it leave you with a desire to continue pursuing solo stuff? Um, uh, no, I think I think yeah. it, I think it 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 um that was a good way to kind of um at least for now kind yeah. of like okay I'm done kind of solo saxophone where I'm back in on guitar again yeah but um um. 
what well, you said for a second or a second ago um that that studying the guitar has changed the way you play sax oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah like what would be an example of that uh it's hard to say exactly but um you know we spend our lives like you know practicing this instrument um and then to do play a, a different instrument that's completely opposite in almost every way mm -hmm. guitar is completely opposite from a wind, mm -hmm. from woodwind instrument um just is is like they they cross pollinate in the background um and the the experience I just found that 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 my saxophone playing was different. Think about sound differently. It 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 made me appreciate more the the things that a saxophone does that a guitar doesn't do. Sure. And um like I tell people this all the time like that when I was a kid in 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 high school, freshman year of high school a friend of mine's mom worked for a company and they, they went on a skiing trip. I'd never been skiing before in my life. They asked me if I wanted to go. So I was like, yeah, sure. So I, 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 you know, I got there and um, took a little lessons on, they gave us a little lesson and I learned how to snow plow, you know, with the kind of skis tips pointed towards each other mm -hmm. on a little hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fell on my face constantly. I had a blast. It was great. And then um, when I was in, when I got to college at, some some people were going up for a skiing trip and they asked me if I wanted to go along. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So I rented some skis and I figured that I would just be back on the little snowplow hill. Mm -hmm. um, but actually I was like skiing like with parallel skis like on a on a kind of a You're intermediate slope. And yeah. like, like, so how did I get better at skiing without skiing? And I could only think that it was because I, in, in high school, I, I did a lot of skateboarding. Yeah. So I think that, that, somehow some experience of that transferred um i also i i had a really i love playing chess i'm terrible at it but i love it and i i went through a phase where i was i was studying and and playing all the time and it and i started to think about music differently mm -hmm. because of thinking about chess everything you do it just it it, it even if it's if it's in a similar milieu, then it, it it does affect everything. It does kind of cross pollinate. So it's playing the. I think playing the guitar did more for my saxophone playing than if I would have just, you know, I'm just gonna keep. Yeah, you know, totally. Doing my thing. Yeah. So I've 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 <clears throat> I, I, I <laughs> can I say this all the time? Like I've become an evangelist of like take up an instrument that's completely different, different. Yeah. And doesn't matter how far you go with it you'll notice that's funny soon, i've been eyeing you know? this guitar online that i've been thinking about buying yeah it's a, a fender jaguar the guitar yeah absolutely i mean plus we grew up listening to it i mean yeah i think my sonically by saxophone playing is is as inf informed by the guitar as it is uh, um arthur Blythe and and sure. john coltrane i mean like you know it's part of our like it or not, the guitar is. A, I love the guitar. You know? I mean, have you gotten into like guitar fetishism? Are you like into like checking out guitars and? Uh, to a certain point, but I I 
I got to the point where I, I have a nice instrument and a nice amp, like you said, and, and like, and I, I just, I just want to, I'm just more into, to, to playing the whole, the whole gear world, uh-huh. which is really fun. Cause you so know, fun. Yeah. saxophone, you know what, you know, Oh, what, what kind of mouthpiece you got? Yeah. That's the most pointless, dumb discussion ever. But, um, you know, the guitar is just like, it's, it's Candyland, like all this neat stuff. So what did you get? What do you play? Guitar? Yeah. Uh, it's, um, I have a 330, the, uh, like a hollow body. A Gibson. Guitar, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A hollow body guitar, and, and um, I have a Princeton Reverb. Is the is it an old guitar? No, it's pretty new. Okay. 2011. I, I Man, I love old instruments, mm-hmm. especially well-maintained old instruments. But most of the time, except for, you know, now I have a nice clarinet. Um, I'm like, I don't fucking deserve or have any... You know, I shouldn't be. I don't need like I bought a bass clarinet, and it's like I I don't have any business playing like a nice old horn with character. Like I just need to focus on getting like some decent sounds with a reliable horn right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, like all old guitars are like that. You know, like you have to you if a lot of like beautiful classic guitars. You know, if you're uh, an experienced guitar player, only should be playing them because they will have a point of reference of like this thing plays weird, but like I know how to handle it. No. No? The, I don't know. I, what do I know? Um, guitars are all so different. That's a, that's a yeah. thing. It's like just like they so many different neck shapes and scale lengths and and you know and even how they're set up is just radically different. Yeah. Um, Have you been writing for the guitar? Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, one of the <laughs> the, the things that I want to record is. Um, I, I have a group that I call my string and reed quartet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I wrote a piece that's like a suite of seven compositions, and I go back and forth between guitar and, and alto uh-huh. and from piece to piece. And the piece is kind of like they cross-pollinate, and they go between each right. other, just kind of like in my life how the saxophone and, and the guitar kind of blend. And it was kind of the first attempt to, um, you know, bring them bring them together. Yeah. But – um. Yeah, the, guitars. I think it's just like any instrument that, like, um, guitars are just. It just happens to be that people will pay crazy amounts for old guitar. Like people that aren't even players, but right. they're like, you know, because of the history of the music or whatever, those super expensive. Well, but they're, like, I mean, you know. they're like. I mean, not to sound like a complete doofus, but it's like cars. Like they're just awesome looking. Like if you see like a beautiful old you know les paul mm-hmm. you know like this les paul from the 70s that weighs you know like 20 pounds or something <laughs> like it's just you can't help but like look at it like it's, it's just this piece of like american you know ingenuity it's beautiful yeah. you know the person who's owned it is clearly you yeah, know yeah. taking care of it actually that's funny like, like that um uh jim campolongo was uh, i was talking about i think it was in a interview I watched online or something he was talking about looking at a, a Fender amp a Princeton Reverb and that little red light there yeah. and it's just like every time I look at it it's like a Christmas tree it's just, yeah. I love just looking at it you know? yeah but um, yeah I have a really old saxophone so that kind of covers my old sure. my old instrument base but, but I have um, that same experience when I whenever I see on the um, on like Selmer Mark 6's where you see the little S uh, where the oh on the the, the octave key thing yeah the I get that same kind of like it's like man that's a, that's a beauty yeah yeah it's just beauty yeah well there's I mean this beautiful objects <laughs> and do you have a band that's just where you're just playing guitar 
Um, yeah, in that quartet, which is usually, I've done it. It's it's usually with Wayne Horvitz. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always been with Wayne. Actually, um, we've done it here most recently at the the Winter Jazz Festival, and then did it in Seattle in October. Couple of couple times in Seattle with, with some with some um, musicians there, uh, great musicians. Um, Greg Campbell's a great drummer, and mm-hmm. Beth Fleenor is an amazing clarinet player. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, before that, I, I I you know just I just play guitar whenever I can. I had kind of a monthly gig at the Firehouse Space that I called the Need, and I think I did about eleven really eleven gigs. You know, where I would just put together different bands and play improvised music that was a good space played yeah that was a real good space yeah i miss it um they're working on a new one yeah that's that's what i heard but um yeah all right but guitars like you know it's so funny because you know you listen to bill it doesn't matter what guitar he's playing it always sounds like Like bill bill you know um well i mean that's the thing it's like I, i i it's one of those like you can fetishize people's instruments but i know if i pick up Charlie Parker sax. I'm gonna sound like shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's um, well, especially with the wind instrument, it's it ninety ninety percent of the sound is is the player. Yeah. What happens on the body side of the instrument, not yeah. in the instrument, which is why it's so crazy. Like, you know, I, every now and then I'll look at like the internet forums for like saxophones and stuff and people are like oh these horns are like this or this mouth it's like no it doesn't work like that <laughs> you know but um i i i've never I've, I've i've played the same horn my whole life the same mouthpiece the same mouthpiece was, your whole life since i was in um in college i bought that the mouthpiece i play now Jesus. I even have the same neck strap from when I was in junior high school. It's like it's my it's my history right there. So yeah. I wear it. But um yeah, you know. Yeah, fuck it if it's working. Yeah. <laughs> because if I mean it like like I say, it really it's really it's you. It's not the Yeah. It's not the gear. Yeah. Um but Alright. I appreciate you coming over and talking, man. My pleasure. It was good. Thank you. Thanks, Brigham. <laughs> All right, that was Brigham Kraus. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. He's a good guy, that Brigham. And, uh, you know, it, it says a lot for a person to keep moving, keep moving, pick up new instruments, try new things. Uh, it says a lot about a person. If you want to find out more about Brigham, you want to check out more of his projects, go to BrigamKraus.com. And if you like this show and you want to you want to dip in a little more deeply, all of the past episodes, 157 of them, are on the 5049 website. So do that. Go to 5049records.com and, uh, and, and check in and check out. That's it. We'll be back next week. Until then, I hope you guys are all doing well. Talk to you soon. Bye.